Okay, well, last week um, we had our an initial lesson in a Latin uh, Christmas carol. This week we're going to take a look at, um, of course, last week we traced the roots of that back to the 4th century. Uh, probably Veni Redemptor Gentium or, or Come Savior of the Nations is probably the oldest um, hymn associated with uh, with Christmas or or Advent. Uh, we're going to move up a few years now. Um, as you can see, uh, the name of the song is "Christ Was Born on Christmas Day," and it's uh, around. The words are thought uh, to be German in origin uh, around the the fourteenth century. Uh, but this um, was translated in, this uh, hymn was translated into English by the man you see there, John Mason Neal, um, much later, English Christmas carols really came into their own, um, really in um, the 18th and uh, 19th century. So we can see... Uh, Christmas, the celebration of Christmas, the observance of Christmas, really moved from the east to the west. It moved, uh, had its origins in, to a great degree, in the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and then it moved into, uh, geographically, it moved west to the Latin Rite Church, the Western Church, and eventually, um, uh, as a result of the Reformation, uh, many of these Advent and Christmas hymns were translated into English. But if uh, we're going to listen to uh, kids sing this song uh, in our first listen this this morning, but if you look at the verses closely, you'll see that there's a strange kind of mixture of English and Latin. So you take the first verse, Christ was born on Christmas Day, read the holly, twine the bay, and then we leave English and we go to Latin. You want to learn it? Chris, Christus, say that, Christus, like Christy, only with a us on the end. Christus, natus, that, that means uh, Everybody's got a, a, a navel, a belly button, nativity. Uh, it's, it's from that word, uh, the root of it, natus, means to be born. Christus natus hodie. Now that doesn't look like you would say, it looks like you'd say howdy or something but it's actually pronounced hodie. So let's say all three words together. Christus natus. That's good. Christus natus hodie means Christ is born today. Hodie means today. Christ is born today. The babe, the son, the holy one of Mary. Verse two, he's born to set us free. He's born our Lord to be. X, meaning uh, finding 
being derived from, really it's, it's the word from, X. What's the next word? Maria, which of course would be Latin for Mary. And then the last word is what? Virgine, vir, or sometimes old Latin would be vir, hard G, virgine. Some new Latin would be soft G, virgine. So let's say all three words. Ex Maria Virgine, Virgine. Ex Maria Virgine, from the Virgin Mary is, is what it means. Christ is born today from the Virgin Mary, the God, the Lord by all adored forever. So this song, uh, again, emphasizes the, the dual nature of Christ. The Athanasian Creed says that Christ was one person with two natures. His divine nature he received from the Father. But his flesh, his humanity, he received from his mother. So all four verses of this song, it kind of dances back and forth around this theme. He is one person with two natures, his divine nature received from his um, Father, the God, the Lord, by all adored forever, but his human nature he received from his mother, the babe, the son, the Holy One of Mary. Let the bright red berries glow, Everywhere in good, goodly show. Say it with me. Let's practice our Latin. Christus natus hodie. There you go. Christus natus hodie. The babe, the son, the holy one of Mary. It's a, it's a relatively simple song. Last verse. Christ, let's read it together. Christians all rejoice and sing. Tis the birthday of a king. Ex Maria Virgine, the God, the Lord, by all adored forever. So this comes from a kid's Christmas album called All I Want is a Hippopotamus for Christmas. That's the title of the album. But they're, they're singing this song and you'll kind of, uh, kind of get used to the uh, melody a little bit. So the point of hearing the kids sing it is if the kids can sing Latin, 
you should be able to uh, sing it too. Let's take a look though at the translator. So songs, of course, a song that has existed. This song was very popular in Europe in the Middle Ages. It would have been sung on the streets uh, everywhere, of course, in its complete uh, Latin version. Uh, but So this song has a long life, over probably over a thousand years. And so it goes through many revisions. Some people say, well, no, argue about the words. Some people argue about uh, the melody of the song itself. But John Mason Neal was, as you see, he was ordained in the Church of England. So um, the Reformation, which started, which most people believe was started by Martin Luther in Germany, in 1517, uh, the Reformation, the split from the Roman Catholic Church, resulted then in, in four different Reformed movements. One, of course, were, was uh, the Lutheran Church, which um, Martin Luther, he didn't really want to start a church. He wanted to reform the uh, the Roman Catholic Church, but when that wasn't going to happen, then the Lutheran Church formed. And then, of course, there was the Reformed Church, which was led by uh, John Calvin further, further south, what we know as Geneva, Switzerland today. Um, then there was the Anabaptist Church, and the Anabaptist Church were all those people who felt like that uh, infant baptism wasn't sufficient, that you needed to get baptized again as an adult. And then there was what we know today as the, the Church of England. So four distinct movements as the result of people's dissatisfaction with the Roman Catholic Church. So the Church of England, of course, um, still exists today. In America, the Episcopal Church, you may have seen, you may drive by and see uh, churches with red doors. Typically, Episcopal churches are churches with, with red doors. Episcopal church is the American version of uh, the Church of England. So John Mason Neal was, here he is in the middle of the 19th century, he was ordained, his ordination was through the Church of England. But he had, John Mason Neal had Roman Catholic sympathies. So if you go back to the 16th century in Rome, in, in, the middle fifth, uh, in England, in the middle 1500s, there was, how many have heard of Henry VIII before? And Henry VIII, of course, he was concerned about getting an heir to occupy the throne once he, he was dead. And he had to marry a series of women to, to accomplish that to, to a greater or lesser degree of success. And because the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't grant him a divorce, he decided that the church in England would separate from Rome and he became the head 
of the Church of England. And even today, Queen Elizabeth is uh, the, the head of the Church of England. But there were many people, so prior to this time, prior to the middle of the 16th century, England was, uh, their churches were governed by uh, Roman Catholic liturgy. So when Henry VIII stepped out, mainly for political reasons, uh, because Rome wouldn't grant him the divorce that he needed, Uh, There were many in the church in England who felt like they were still loyal to the Roman Catholic Church. Um, It was known in, we've all heard of Oxford, Cambridge and Oxford. Oxford, one of the great um, English colleges. But there was a movement known as um, the Oxford Movement. And that movement was kind of an underground movement that, Um, was trying to introduce back into the Church of England more of Roman Catholic theology and ideology. So John Mason Neal was sympathetic um, to this movement known as the Oxford Movement. And as a result, um, he was not promoted within the Church of England. His work was obscure and um, kind of underground work. And, but he did a lot of work in uh, translating uh, music or hymns from the East, not only the Latin East Rome, but also the Eastern Orthodox Church, translating these hymns, these words into English, and um, as a result of that, he was introducing uh, Catholic, small c Catholic theology into the Church of England, thereby sustaining and preserving it. Now, we all may have different ideas about whether that's right or whether that's wrong. That's beside the point. This is just the history of it. So one of the things that we saw last week is that Christmas prior to it being, prior to Western culture, Western secular godless culture kind of getting on the Christmas bandwagon because what is it like most retail businesses make like 60-70% of their income, their profit during Christmas time. So, but prior to Christmas becoming so secularized. Christmas was, it was owned by the church. It was on the church calendar and it was deeply theological. And it was deeply theological because Christmas was a celebration of the incarnation. So someone may say, I still don't get this Advent thing. When are we going to get happy about baby Jesus being born in the Bethlehem. We'll get there eventually, but the idea within the church was actually Advent began, uh, its origins are rooted in a time of fasting. So 
we're kind of mixed up here, you know. We th- we th- we're having four Sundays in Advent. And what are we doing? We're coming to church and we're eating. But the the celebration, the feast, wasn't really till December twenty fifth. So prior to that time, then you had a period of preparation uh, and fasting, and it was it wasn't forty days like we we typically see in Lent. But there were certain days of the week, sometimes Tuesdays and Thursdays during the weeks of Advent, where people would fast in preparation for the feast of Christmas. So someone may say, you know, if you remember the gospel passage last week from Matthew chapter 24, talking about the second coming of Jesus. And then this week we're we're, we're all kind of messed up. We're talking about John the Baptist, who was a forerunner to Jesus before he starts his ministry. So it seems as, as though we've got a time warp going on here. We started Advent, which is to be a celebration of Jesus' first coming, by talking about being prepared for his second coming. And now we ha- hear from the gospel passage in Matthew chapter 3 about John the Baptist, who was the forerunner for Jesus before he began his ministry as a man at his first coming. Are you tracking with me here? So it seems like we got, what what are the compilers of the lectionary? Are they messing with us? Why can't we just get to Christmas? Now that's what normally in non-liturgical churches, and we're not a highly liturgical church, by the way. Some of you I know think that we are because we, you know, we, we read the, we've read the collect together for the last 30 years. Oh, yeah, yeah, Pastor Allen, he's Catholic. It, 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 that is so far, we are really low church with some liturgical influences that I've introduced into it because Christmas can just be a meaningless mess if you allow the culture to be the Christmas driver. And we've all experienced that. Um, We experienced that on December 26th when most women are sick of Christmas, they're sick of cooking, they're sick of shopping, right? Well, maybe not sick of shopping, but they're sick of the... and so. I want to get the tree down. I want to get the house cleaned up. I want to get things back to normal, right? And we, and we let the culture rob us. We, we're not ready for Christmas. We, ha- we didn't get ready for Christmas. And when Christmas shows up, we're already sick of it, not realizing that Christmas Day is the beginning of the, of the 12 days of Christmas where we're really supposed to celebrate not giving gifts, not eating food necessarily, not being having parties, but we are celebrating the mystery of this deep, deeply theological teaching of the incarnation, who was born in Bethlehem. So look at number three. This is written by a guy by the name of Alan M. Ellis. I don't know him. So why does the, are you there? Page two, number three. Why does the lectionary, so lectionary is just a, a, lectio means 
uh, scripture or reading. It's, it's just a collection of suggested scripture verses to read on every Sunday. Why does a lectionary? So we follow the common lectionary. So that means if you went into, if you went into any church, um, Methodist, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopalian, uh, some Baptist churches that follow liturgical calendar, if they do the scripture readings, um, they're consulting the same uh, common lectionary. So why does the lectionary direct us to a gospel passage, Matthew 3, 1 through 12, about John the Baptist on the second Sunday of Advent? What does this guy who's got, you know, he's, he's eating locusts and wild honey, and he's got uh, animal skins for clothing. He's just wild and crazy looking. What does this person and the passage has to do with John the Baptist announcing the way of Jesus, who is by now, he's 30 years old. He's about ready to embark on his ministry as a priest, prophet, and king to the nation of Israel. What does this have to do with getting ready for Christmas? And why is it that we're taking, we're going, we're running all the way to the end of the Gospel of Matthew on the first Sunday of Advent, and we're kind of backing our way through the book to get up to the birth narrative in the opening chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. So what does John have to do with Christmas? Okay, let's try to answer those two questions. The theme of Advent, as we've seen, is what? Preparation, or more precisely, our apparent lack of preparation for Christ's coming. Uh, I, I can say this with all the confidence that I can muster. We, we are not ready to celebrate Christmas. We, we're focused on a million and one other things because this is the influence that the, that the surrounding culture has on us. That post I put on Facebook, don't let the culture rob the Christmas cradle, right? Well, we've, we've done that. We've allowed the culture uh, to superimpose, to impose on us an agenda that really has nothing to do with the celebration of Christ's birth. So the theme of Advent is preparation or more precisely, we have to deal with our apparent lack of preparation. Advent intends to sound an alarm, to give voice to a dissonant note. So we heard it last week in, in the reading from Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus says, just as the people who lived during the days of Noah, when Noah was building the ark, just as they were not ready for the rain to start, he preached, for, preached and built for a year, then, then it started the rain, the people were not ready, just as those people were not ready. Um, so Jesus says, it's going to be the same way. You're not going to be ready for the coming, uh, the second coming of the Son of Man. 
when I come again. That's a dissonant note. That's not the sweet-smelling little baby Jesus. I don't know if, if Jesus was all that sweet-smelling in the manger at Bethlehem. Um, you know, human, of course, birth now is, uh, it's been made more antiseptic. If you ever read the book, um, The Good Earth, uh, women in China uh, would be out working in the fields all day, even pregnant women. And when it came time for them to give birth, they would just go to the edge of the field and sit in their haunches and give birth to the child and take care of business and put uh, feed the child, wrap them up, and go back to work in the field. Now, we've made birth more... <laughs> Amy's getting, getting sick. Look at her. So all the blood has drained out of her face. She's like, ah, I, I'm not doing that. No, no, no more kids for me, if that's what it... See, so we, we've cleaned it up. Uh, but... But the, the birth of Jesus Christ was surrounded by all, all sorts of alarms were going on. All sorts of dissonant uh, notes. In, in the midst of the joy, in the midst of the hope, in the midst of what we've turned Christmas into, which is this kind of melange, this mixture of, of uh, so-called Christian values and, and the culture's values. But Advent is meant to wake us up. And in this passage, then, again, why do the compilers of the lectionary say you need to read Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, the story about John the Baptist on the second Sunday of Advent? Because John the Baptist was a disruptor. He was stirring things up, right? He's baptizing people. He's saying, it's not enough for you to be a child of Abraham. Um, you're, you're a sinner, so I'm going to start baptizing people. And the text tells us that people came to be baptized, and before they were baptized, they confessed their sins. And then out of the corner of his, his eyes, he sees uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees showing up probably poking around, nosing around, see, what, see what's going on. And he takes in to them, right? He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Um, so it's, you say, because you're a child of Abraham, that gives, you're in like Flynn, that you're automatically saved because you can trace your physical lineage back to Abraham. Um, but I, I say to you that you need to bring forth, you need to bear fruit that is, uh, that signifies that you have indeed repented. He says, um, there's one that comes after me. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So it. So the intention in Advent then is that we have to, and it makes us uncomfortable because we want to get to 
sweet baby Jesus. Um, we, we, want, we want to get to the Christmas cookies. But the intention of Advent is to make us uncomfortable. It's for us to take stock. You know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm trusting in the fact that I'm a good person. I go to church. I read my Bible. All of those things accrue to the fact that I'm quote-unquote saved. And John the Baptist steps in onto the stage in the second Sunday of Advent and says, don't put your trust in, your, in those things. You're, you're not... What was that phrase, Jack Nicholson, in the movie? You can't handle the truth. Remember that? You can't handle the truth. None of us can handle the truth. And Advent is to, meant to set a fire under us, to sound this dissonant note, but also to sweep through our lives and to burn out those things, those things that are unnecessary, those things that are excessive. In many ways, it's like Lent. It's a time in which we actively are involved in cutting out the underbrush of our lives. So just as people were not ready for Christ's first coming, so we're not ready for his second coming. Advent requires us to admit that we are not truly ready for Christmas. So how do we properly prepare? By exploring the deeply astounding theology of the incarnation. Who was born at Bethlehem? That's the question. Um, that really begs to be asked, explored, answered uh, during Christmas time. The right answer to that question will change our lives and the world forever. So, if you look back again at the words of this song, we're going to hear an Irish group sing it. Maybe we can... Try singing along with it a little bit. There is then this deeply theological theme in the older Advent and, and Christmas hymns and carols. And we get a little bit of this. What Mason, John Mason Neal is doing is he's reminding the Church of England here in the middle of the 19th century He's reminding the church that there are these Latin roots, the Latin fathers, um, the, the, the patriarchs of the Eastern Rite who figured out all of this theological stuff in the first three or 400 years of the church's history. And I think the reason why maybe that John Mason Neal has a song with, where there's a mixture of English and Latin in it is to remind us once again of these deeply theological, uh, deeply held theological truths that first of all, um, that ex Maria Virgine, that Mary was in fact, um, that Christ was born of a virgin, so that the birth of Jesus Christ is different from anyone else's birth. All right, so let's, We'll we'll hear this the second listening of this song. Mm -hmm. 
So just to, if you can just give me about five minutes more. So on page two, you'll, you'll see a poem written by Robert Southwell. And it has a, a strange title, The Burning Babe. This was written by, again, in the 16th century. In, in the middle of the 16th century, Elizabeth I tried to come up with what they call the Elizabethan agreement or settlement. Um, between Catholics in the Church of England and those who had more Protestant leanings in the Church of England. They were, Elizabeth I was, had Protestant sympathies. If you were someone in the Church of England who was, uh, had Catholic sympathies, you were, you were liable to being drawn and quartered. And Robert Southwell did have Catholic sympathies. He led a Catholic congregation and eventually he was martyred. So we, we might say, well, he was a Catholic and you know we don't agree with Catholics about this and about that. Anybody who dies for their faith, um, wow, that, that's something that I think all of us can say we hope we never have to do. Uh, but being drawn and quartered, you know, of course, that wasn't the most pleasant kind of death where you were, you were basically tied down, stretched out by your legs and your arms, and then they basically disemboweled you while you're still alive. Um, they were good at it. They could keep you alive while they're taking your bodily organs out. And then when you finally did die, then they took your body and quartered it, cut it up just like you were at a meat market and they may impale your head on, you just wonder how people could do that to other people. And here, this is all over Christian theology between Protestants and Catholics. Anyways, Southwell was eventually martyred. But he wrote this poem, and it's a strange poem. If you look in paragraph one, The Burning Bay by Robert Southwell is one of the most famous and powerful Christmas poems in the English, English language. Look, he says, uh, As I in hoary winter's night, hoary means white, so he's saying that it's snowing. As I in hoary winter's night stood shivering in the snow, Surprised I was with sudden heat, which made my heart to glow. And lifting up a fearful eye to view what fire was near, 
a pretty babe all burning bright did in the air appear. So this is a, a baby that is on um, fire. Who, scorched with excessive heat, such floods of tears did shed. So the baby was suffering because of the heat and began to cry as though his floods, and you see the word his is capitalized, as though his floods should quench his flames, which with his tears were bred. Alas, quoth he, but newly born in fiery heats I fry, yet none approach to warm their hearts or feel my fire but I. My faultless breast the furnace is, the fuel wounding thorns. Love is the fire and sighs the smoke. The ashes shames and scorns, the fuel justeth layeth on, and mercy blows the coals. The metal in this furnace wrought are men's defiled souls, for which as now on fire I am to work them to their good, so will I melt into a bath to wash them in my blood. With this he vanished out of sight and swiftly shrunk away, and straight I called unto mine that it was Christmas Day. Now that, is the strangest Christmas poem you will ever read. It's the, it's the most dissonant, like, what? This has nothing to do with what I think Christmas is about. Of course, this was, this is what we've lost in the popular church in America. And we always talk about, you know, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I want to go back to, and we, we're not even familiar with our own history to know what it is that we need to go back to. So what does a, a baby who's on fire have to do with Christmas? Well, if you look in, in paragraph one, it explains a little bit. In the first four lines of the poem, a cold and isolated narrator stands shivering in the snow at night when he suddenly senses a comforting heat which lifts his spirits and causes his heart to glow. Nevertheless, he casts a fearful glance at the source of the heat and astonishingly, he sees suspended in the air a pretty baby, a pretty babe all burning bright. This burning babe is the infant Jesus Christ. In lines five through eight of the poem, Christ's child's peculiar condition is carefully described. The babe is scorched with excessive heat and shedding floods of tears. Finally, this amazing and sorrowful image speaks not with the joy usually associated with Christmas, but with the complaint that none approach to warm their hearts. Clearly, the babe is reminding the stunned narrator that the extraordinary miracle of the incarnation, Christ's human birth, is too often taken for granted that men too often refuse to undertake a true and necessary commitment to Christ's warming love. You say, what does this have to do? Well, think about John's, John the Baptist's message that Jesus was to come and he was the one that was going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
Then in lines 9 through 12, the love of God is portrayed not only as warming, but also as purifying. My faultless breast the furnace is, and the metal in this furnace wrought are men's defiled souls. Through this extraordinary metaphor, Jesus as a purifying furnace, the Christ child reminds the narrator that the great news of the incarnation is not only that God is among us, which is extraordinary enough, but also that this incarnation also initiates a redemption through which all men can purify themselves before God. In the poem's final four lines, the Christ child reinforces the furnace imagery with a related metaphor of purification and cleansing, the promise to all men to melt into a bath to wash them in my blood. With these words, the burning babe suddenly vanishes from sights and the amazed narrator immediately recalls that it was Christmas day. Thus the poem, through the Christ child, reminds the narrator and the reader that Christmas and the redemption, here's the point, cannot be separated and that the best awakening that one could possibly have each Christmas is to remember that the purpose of the incarnation is one's personal salvation. So look at paragraph two and then we'll be done. St. Robert Southwell shows us so powerfully what is at stake at Christmas. The newborn Christ, though innocent, already suffers from the abandonment of souls. His pure heart burns for love of souls and literally burns up their sins, which fuel the fire of his heart with the result that souls are purified and made to shine like metal. I find it fascinating that the day after Christmas is the feast of the first martyr, St. Stephen. So rather odd, isn't it? The feast of the proto-martyrs, St. Stephen, the first martyr, sharpens our understanding of the incarnation. Christmas is not simply a quaint feast, but one that requires a decision. The prophecy of Simeon at Christ's presentation makes this reality clear. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The newborn babe brings peace, but a peace that must cut through sin serve as a sign of contradiction and ultimately bring repentance. Accepting this babe and his burning love ultimately will require suffering. Accepting the gentle yoke of Christ that will beat us like metal, it will require a sword to pierce our soul like our ladies, that our tears may join to that of the babe so that he will no longer suffer alone. So this, once again, is what we're seeking for in the Sundays of Advent is really what, again, if we go back to paragraph three, trying to answer the question, who was born at Bethlehem? Who was born at Bethlehem? And the answer to that is that the God-man was born at Bethlehem. A baby, yes, but also a king. All right, we'll pray together. Thank you, Father.
um, that as we expose ourselves, ourselves during this time of Advent uh, to this very uh, dissonant thought, it's disturbing thought actually that that we realize that we're not we're not prepared uh, to welcome you and in the manner in which not only that you're worthy to be welcomed, but in the manner in which you require of us to welcome you in walking out the great Christmas miracle year by year as we do during Advent and Christmas. Our, our hearts are elsewhere. We're distracted. We're unfocused. We're uh, taken up with those things that are temporal instead of, instead of bearing down on things that are eternal. Even our disappointments are grounded in things that will soon pass away. Uh, we don't, we commiserate. We say, I don't have the money. I don't have the feelings. I don't have the gifts. I don't have the friends. I don't have the food. I don't have the house. I don't have the toys that I want. And all of those things cause us to, to look earthward to things that will eventually melt away uh, at your second coming. We're focused on those things that will not last. And we would rather be temporally satisfied than do the hard work of finding out what it is that needs to satisfy our eternal desires and longings. That, that, place in our hearts, O oh Lord, that is, is empty until we find ourselves in you, O oh God. So help us, remind us this week, Lord, in the midst of our busyness and in the midst of doing those things which we think will bring us hope, peace, joy, and love, Help us just for a moment, just to step away from uh, those things that really sow within us seeds of dissatisfaction. Help us to step away from those things and focus on, on the fire that needs to come to burn away those things which prevent us from seeing who you really are. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.